Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. I'm one of the hosts, and you are now tuned into our OITE review. Uh, We hope you all have been enjoying these past couple episodes on trauma, and we will kind of continue on. Uh, Today, we're going to talk a little bit about from the scapula to the proximal humerus. And uh, again, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, please hit that subscribe button. And please, after this episode, leave us a review. That would help out a bunch. A lot of you listening that haven't left a review yet. So come on now. (laughs) So without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now we're going out even more into the shoulder girdle um, and uh, talking about uh, some scapular fractures. Yeah, yeah. So scapular fractures, you know, the thing that you should kind of know about these are, you know, they always ask, like, you know, what's the most common fracture associated with scapular fractures? And we know, you know, you can see rib fractures appearing almost half of the time. I mean, it's, it's, it, ribs are right next to the scapula, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it, that should you know just make sense you know other injuries include you know anything with the lungs right so you can have a pneumothorax which is something that you want to make sure you know a lot of times they have ct scans like you're alluding to a little bit earlier so you look through the ct scans and see if you notice anything you know like a, a pneumothorax or if you notice that they have you know clavicle fractures patients can also have ac separations so you know if you have a, a fracture that goes uh, goes through the scapular neck and you have a fracture through the clavicle, you know, that'd be kind of what we call the floating shoulder. Um, and it's also associated with head and brachial plexus injuries. Uh, but the a big thing to know is that, you know, rib fractures are the most common fracture associated with scapular fractures. Yeah, and they will be tested. Yeah, they definitely, they test it all the time. And, and so, so what's the typical, you know, non-operative treatment for scapular body fractures? Uh, kind of same thing with everything else around the shoulder girdle it's a lot of just sling immobilization to let the uh, kind of initial pain from the uh, trauma uh, dissipate and then uh, seven to ten days uh, of uh, immobilization then you start working on the range of motion and then the strengthening after that the 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 scapula is fortunate it's got a lot of muscle bellies around it it heals well it has a high union rate um, because it's got that very robust blood supply, but there are times when we do need to operate on the scapula and, uh, uh, how do we kind of determine, uh, those? Yeah. So, you know, indications to operate on a, a scapular body fractures when you have medial or, or lateral displacement greater than two centimeters or greater than, than 20 millimeters. Also, when you have a glenar polar angle less than 20 degrees, and what a glenar polar angle is, is that, you know, if you take the uh, a line down that, that lateral border of the scapula and then a, a line down the, the glenoid, that angle that that creates is kind of that, that glenopolar angle. So when that angle has decreased down to less than 20 degrees, because normally it's around 40 or so, um, that's one of the indications to operate on a scapular body fracture, as well as body angulation greater than 45 degrees. So, you know, that's if you're looking at a, a scap Y and um, and you see that that body is, is angulated and you measure it in more than 45 degrees, that's another indication 
um, to do that. And, you know, these, these indications for when I operate, these are, you know, these are kind of based on this study um, that was on extra articular scapular fractures and, and, um, you know, found out that, you know, functional outcomes after uh, operative management of extra articular glenoid neck and scapular body fractures. Uh, that is the, uh, the article, if you want to read a little bit more about that. And um, so say, you know, we're going to go, we have a, a patient, you know, glenar polar angle of, of 15, um, if the body is angulated, you know, 60 degrees and it's displaced three centimeters, you know, what's the typical interval used in a posterior Judea approach for scapular fractures? Yeah, so the Judea approach is an internervous plane uh, between the infraspinatus, which is the suprascapular nerve, and teres minor, which is uh, the axillary nerve. Um, it's a it's a big dissection. It's a it's a big surgery. But um, once you uh, have seen a few of these, the uh, the anatomy starts to make a little bit more sense, and it it gives you a good posterior approach to the uh, to the glenoid, um, but the the key points here yeah, is that that internervous uh, plane, um, and then uh, the kind of common uh, complications or dangers uh, from this are one the uh, suprascapular nerve um, as it passes around the base uh, of the uh, spine of the scapula. Um, if you retract too much on that infraspinatus, uh, it can kind of cause a traction injury. You have the uh, axillary nerve, which passes through the quadrangular space beneath the teres minor, but there's also uh, a risk of the uh, circumflex artery uh, to get damaged during this approach as well. So uh, just being mindful of the structures, just like you are in any other surgery, and uh, you'll avoid these uh, complications. But uh, then uh, for the, the scapula, I mean, obviously a, another part of this is the glenoid. What are we kind of looking for uh, in a uh, scapular fracture that either uh, exits through the glenoid or, or isolated glenoid fractures that we, uh, we want to operate on? Yeah, so, you know, operative indications for glenoid fractures, these are going to be patients, and studies vary, but, you know, that have an intraarticular step off, you know, greater than anywhere from, you know, three to 10 millimeters or greater. Um, that's going to be one, one um, operative in indication. Another one are going to be uh, fractures that involve anywhere from 20 to 30% or, or more of the articular surface. And then any patient that has glenohumeral joint instability, and typically what that means is, you know, if you looking at a CT scan and you're looking at an x-ray and you see persistent humeral head subluxation. You know, that, that, that right there kind of lets you know that that glenohumeral joint is, is not the most stable. So again, you know, three three, some of the operative indications for a glenoid fracture is going to be an intraarticular step off greater than, you know, at least three millimeters. Uh, involvement of uh, 20 to 30% or more of the articular surface and then uh, glenohumeral joint instability. Now, another thing that, you know, that you always want to be on the lookout for is, you know, scapulothoracic disassociation. Uh, Spencer, what, what is it? And then what are some uh, injuries that are associated with, you know, the scapulothoracic disassociation? Yeah, so the uh, scapula and the thorax form kind of a joint within itself. Uh, and the uh, uh, articulation between those two can get uh, disrupted 
uh, with a uh, high velocity injury, a traction injury to the uh, upper extremities. And it usually is that lateral traction, kind of that um, pulling on the arm, whether it's a car crash from somebody with their arm hanging out the window or they're falling from a height and they grab onto something which acutely stops their fall. Um, and it, it really does uh, do a lot of damage to that uh, shoulder girdle and uh, chest wall and lungs. And you can, uh, you commonly see uh, scapula fractures, clavicle fractures, AC dislocations, slash, uh, separations, uh, even extension all the way to the sternoclavicular joint, and then a flail extremity, which is, um, can really, it's, been seen in up to 52% of these types of injuries. And what a flail extremity is, is a complete loss of uh, motor and sensory function, which renders the extremity essentially non-functional. It's a, it's a brachial plexus injury that um, is very traumatizing to the patient. But uh, along with those injuries, you can also see vascular injuries of the subclavian and axillary arteries. And um, the Neurologic injuries, um, you uh, will see those more commonly than the vascular injuries just because the nerves are a little bit less forgiving than the uh, vasculature. Um, but also associated with this, <laughs> and uh, I did not know this until recently, is that they are associated with a 10% mortality rate, um, which you would think, wow, that's for, a, for an injury to the shoulder, but a lot of other stuff has to happen for this scapulothoracic disassociation to really occur. Um, yeah. But uh, what, uh, when, when we're looking at a chest x-ray or a shoulder x-ray, um, uh, how are we going to really determine if this is truly a, a scapulothoracic disassociation versus just a, a scapular fracture or, or a clavicle fracture? Yeah, so, you know, what you can do, just like you said, when you're looking at a chest x-ray is you can measure uh, the distance from the spinous processes to the medial border of the scapula on, on both sides. So you can compare the two, and, and hopefully they should be around the same number. And I think there's it may be even be a ratio if it's greater than that may clue you into scapular thoracic disassociation. But the main thing that you want to do is, 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 you know, measure the point from pretty much you're measuring from midline to where the the medial border of that scapula is and if one is way you know one is is way uh higher you know the distance is way longer than the other one you know that may clue you in towards uh you know this patient may have something else going on you know you just you want to check out their you know their their mm -hmm. vascular status nerve status etc oh yeah and um and what is so 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 moving forward and we're talking about shoulder dislocations which at least most of us should see at some point, I don't know, some EDs, are, some of the ED physicians are, are kind of can take care of these, you know, without orthopedic help most of the time. Sometimes they need us, but uh, nonetheless, they still ask about this and, and talking about shoulder dislocation. So what is the most common position that the arm is in when there's an anterior shoulder dislocation? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you'll see the arm in abduction and external rotation and a good way that I... Uh, remember this is, I mean, that's the kind of apprehension test uh, for these either multi-directional instability patients or uh, uh, multiple dislocators as you put them in this abduction external rotation uh, position. And if they feel instability in that position, then you're going to 
uh, kind of assume that there's some uh, instability within within the anterior shoulder. Um, and uh, what's the, uh, uh, I mean, we get uh, pimped on this all the time and we try and educate our, our ED colleagues all the time for the uh, shoulder dislocations. What, what sort of view do we want to see uh, to, to prove whether the, the joint is in or out? Yeah, so you definitely want to get a um, an axillary view. You want to get an axillary an axillary view. That way you can take a look at the the you can see the surface of the glenoid, and then you can see the surface of the humeral head, and you can also you know no one is a good view because you can see if there's any wear of the glenoid, or you can see if there are, you know any fractures of the glenoid. Um, you can also see fractures of the humeral head, but that's a, one of the main things that you want to you know make sure you get. Make sure you have an axillary view. Uh, that way you can say that okay the the shoulder is reduced like the humeral head is is congruent with the with the glenoid uh now now what is the most common neuropraxia seen with anterior shoulder dislocation uh, same thing as the uh, x-ray view where uh, we want to test out that axillary uh nerve so whether that's sensation over the lateral uh, shoulder versus once it's reduced testing uh, that uh, deltoid function and making sure that you're testing the deltoid rather than the uh, rotator cuff. Um, and then uh, we uh, have seen, I mean, a lot of trauma, you see that kind of bimodal distribution. You see the young patients, you see the old patients. Um, what sort of things differentiate or uh, kind of are, uh, are hot topics within shoulder dislocation of the young patient compared to uh, an older patient, like let's say like over 50. Yeah. So when you're thinking about young patients that have these anterior shoulder dislocations, you know, you're, you're thinking of, you know, these, these patients may present more with like an anterior label tear. Okay. Which can lead to anterior capsular insufficiency. And these patients can also have, you know, hill sac lesions. And I always remember hill sacs has an H. So, you know, it's on a humerus because I remember it was a very long time. I could not figure out <laughs> which one uh, Bankart was on the glenoid or the, or the humerus. I just remembered hill sacs is H. So it's on the humerus and, you know, the typical, you know, they have, you know, anterior inferior capsular, uh, insufficiency is going to be common in these patients and the way you just think about it or the way somebody described it to me is if you put your arm in that you have a shirt on if you put your arm in that abducted external rotation uh, position kind of that area on your shirt that's tight is kind of the same area in the capsule that's tight so you know that's kind of the anterior inferior capsule um, so again in younger patients you're thinking more like labral injuries and in older patients greater than 50 with an, after an acute shoulder dislocation you may think of something like a rotator cuff tear. So they may, you know, have a, have a question that, you know, this patient had this injury and they show you a picture of a shoulder dislocation and they say afterwards that the patient still has shoulder pain. They can't uh, initiate abduction of the shoulder. And then they'll show you an possible MRI that shows a bunch of fluid around where the rotator cuff tendon should be inserting on the on the greater tuberosity. And you know there, you know, that they're kind of trying to point you towards a rotator cuff tear. Now, um, what is the treatment for an acute shoulder dislocation? Uh, one, you want to reduce, you want to get that joint back in place. Um, and then, uh, I mean, looking at the x-rays, if it is just a true shoulder dislocation, you're going to slow them down in a sling for a couple of weeks and then start working on that uh, range of motion. Um, 
with uh, physical therapy. Um, one quick thing with the uh, shoulder dislocations is that uh, the younger the patient, the higher chance that they will re-dislocate in the future. I don't know the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but I do know that there is a, a paper out there that uh, a shoulder dislocator prior to 18 years old has a very high chance that they will re-dislocate in the future. So you want to definitely make sure that you are ruling out uh, labral injuries, um, bony bank carts, uh, and, and stabilizing these patients before they become recurrent dislocators uh, if they are truly that unstable. But for most of them, they can be reduced and treated in a sling. Um, but that's, that's all anterior uh, shoulder dislocations. Um, let's say that the uh, shoulder x-ray looks a little bit off, um, but you're, you're unsure of kind of what's going on. Uh, kind of inform us about what you're looking for with a posterior shoulder dislocation. Yeah, and, and you just mentioned it, you know, the x-ray looking a, a little bit off, you may be kind of referring to that, that light bulb sign where they, you take a look at it and it just doesn't look, it doesn't look right. And it kind of the, the humor had shifted, the, 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 the position of the humerus has shifted a little and it kind of looks like the outline of a light bulb, but you know, that kind of clues you in towards a posterior shoulder dislocation. And on physical exam findings, these patients are gonna have like a lack of external rotation because that shoulder is posterior. So it's very hard uh, for them to externally rotate. And you know, this is kind of the classic in, in med school, they talk about patients that have seizures or had shock. Uh, they're the ones that kind of come in, an electrical shock, I'm sorry. They're the ones that kind of come in with these posterior shoulder dislocations, which is actually true. Uh, being a resident, I, the ones that I've seen have been mostly due to seizures. Yep. Um, so yeah, I've actually seen them. I was like, oh man, it's actually real life stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, and since we're talking about posterior shoulder dislocations, what are some of the associated bony lesions that can be seen? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you talked about that uh, hill sacs lesion uh, occurring over the posterior humerus with the anterior, but you can get a reverse hill sacs, which is a very similar kind of uh, erosion slash indentation uh, of that anterior humerus. Um, and then uh, right in that area is a lesser tuberosity, so you can see a lesser tuberosity fracture. Uh, and then uh, just like with the anterior labral tears for an anterior shoulder dislocation, you see the posterior labral tears uh, with a posterior dislocation. You kind of lose that posterior buttress that the labrum uh, provides. Um, but then uh, the, uh, the kind of elusive uh, shoulder dislocation that happens inferiorly uh, it has a very uh, sexy name and and, uh, <laughs> and all of that. So uh, why don't you go over that for a little bit? <laughs> yeah. um, we're talking about the Lux, Lux, Luxadio erecta. That is going to be our, uh, and I might butcher the name or butcher the <laughs> pronunciation, no. but you know, that, that's going to be, that's going to be seen in our inferior shoulder dislocations. And, and, you know, uh, just if you think about it, if your humor head goes inferior to your glenoid, it, just think like your arm's going to be abducted, you know, pretty high, you know, it could be abducted anywhere from hundred to 160 degrees. And uh, just remember, there's a lot of, you know, nerves and, and, and structures uh, that kind of run, 
medial and inferior to your uh, to your to your glenohumeral joint. So these injuries can be associated with neurovascular injuries anytime you have these inferior shoulder dislocations. Now um, let's let's transition a little bit and uh, get into the humerus. So you know we have near we spoke about a near classification for mid-shaft humerus I'm, I'm sorry mid-shaft clavicle fractures we talked about uh you know greater or less than 100 percent displacement and leading to about 4.5 uh, percent non-union rate or something like that and then we also talked about the near classification for distal clavicle fractures uh what are some of the parts of a what or what are the four parts of a proximal humerus fracture uh, yeah, so I mean, you have the articular surface, um, which is separated by the uh, anatomic neck. Uh, then you have the uh, greater tuberosity as its own entity, the lesser tuberosity, and then the uh, shaft. And what separates the kind of the shaft from the rest of that is the surgical neck of the humerus. And uh, in order for it to be considered a part, uh, in quotes, uh, according to Dr. Near, is uh, you need to see displacement of one centimeter or a change of 45 degrees from its anatomic position. And uh, the only uh, kind of added uh, modification to that is the greater tuberosity uh, displacement is uh, five millimeters instead of one centimeter. And that really uh, the reason for that is um, because it displaces primarily uh, superiorly because of the pull of the uh, rotator cuff that you can develop uh, subacromial impingement if it is displaced too high. So uh, in order for the greater tuberosity to be considered a part, it's uh, five millimeters instead of one centimeter. Um, and then uh, the proximal humerus fractures are the bane of the uh, orthopedic surgeon's existence and uh, cause for many to retire early. Uh, why, uh, why would that be, uh, uh, or I, I, would, I should say, like, primarily due to, like, uh, humeral head, like, AVN, right? And so, uh, yeah. what's kind of that hurdle criteria to discuss the uh, humeral head AVN uh, uh, kind of concerning findings? Yeah, so, you know, the, this hurdle criteria, um, you know, he, he, he published an article, you know, pretty much saying exactly what you said. This is called Predictors of Humeral Head Ischemia After Intracapsular Fracture of the Proximal Humerus. So some of the factors associated with humeral head ischemia is one is medial periosteal hinge disruption. Um, two is, is you have the medial metadiaphyseal extension um, less than eight uh less than eight millimeters. Uh, other things is if you have an increasing uh, complexity pattern, and then if you have a four-part fracture. Um, other things, you know, that were associated that were less important is, you know, greater than one uh, centimeter displacement and angulation uh, greater than 45 degrees was a little bit less important. Um, and they also noted that, you know, posterior circumflex vessels alone may be sufficient for head survival. So I think way back in the day, the thought process was that, you know, you needed the anterior circumflex vessels in order to, uh, that they were the main contributor to the humeral head. But I think now they, they note that uh, the posterior circumflex vessels alone may, um, are, are a big 
contributor to the uh, humoral head and, and the survival of it. And it took me a while to learn the hurdle criteria and kind of what some of those things meant, like the medial metadiapsial extension in the medial periosteal hinge disruption. Do you have any tricks that you use to uh, remember kind of uh, like uh, what these concepts are? Um, uh, in terms of that, like the hurdle criteria. Um, yeah. For this criteria, I would say the single greatest uh, predictor of humeral head AVN and the thing I look for the most is that calcar length greater or less than uh, eight millimeters that if it's less than I think that yeah they're going to have a higher chance of that AVN versus uh, greater than eight millimeters um, going to push me a lot more towards ORAF but um, I wouldn't say that that's going to exclude any patient from getting a surgery it's just kind of prepare me for the next step in the process but um, right uh, so so with these you want the, that distal metaphyseal extension of the head fragment to be greater than eight millimeters. Exactly. That's what yeah. you want. So if it's less than that, that is something that uh, can kind of predict, you know, that your humeral head may, you know, undergo ischemia uh, more often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, oh, that's actually the next question that we're going to ask. Um, but just to reiterate, uh, the single greatest predictor of humeral head ischemia or humeral head AVN after proximal humerus fractures is that calcar length less than eight millimeters. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I hope you all enjoyed this first week of trauma review series. Um, please let us know how you like it. Email us at nailedortho at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. Do you like the way that things are going? Do you like the format? Do you not like it? Um, you know, this is something we could try to continue out. Uh, through trauma as well as you know sports foot and ankle etc etc and also look in the description and sign up so you can get updated about the companion book that will drop for these notes as well there may be some nice pictures and slides and if you're on the email you may get uh get early access and cheap access so uh and that would help out a bunch so until next week <laughs>